Make your way, if you will, to Luke chapter 2. Be looking at the last portion of the second chapter of Luke. On their own, inanimate objects make no improvements. Think about the clothes that you're wearing right now, or the Bible that's resting in your lap, or the car that got you here this morning, those of you who don't walk. How have they done? I think you understand that the best day in the life of your clothes was the day that you bought them, right? Didn't get any better than that. The Bible that you hold in your lap, it has not gotten in any better shape since the day that you purchased it and opened it for the first time. And your car, uh, we don't even have to talk about that, do we? Particularly here in Northland with all the salt. It just doesn't get any better. These animate, inanimate objects go downhill, but animate objects are different, aren't they? Living things grow up. They become complete. They become mature. Drive a new car off the lot and you know full well its condition will never get any better than it is right now. But drive away from a nursery, let's say, with a small tree in your trunk and you go away with high hopes that this tree is going to mature to become a shade tree. It's going to grow, you trust. Drive away from the pet store with a kitten or puppy and you expect the pet to grow. It won't stay the same. You might wish that it did, but it won't. It's it's going to change. Animate objects change. They grow. They mature. And when parents drive away from a hospital with a newborn in the back seat, they drive off with great anticipation of the coming changes that will come in the life of that child. In fact, human beings undergo the most complicated and the most fascinating maturation process of any living thing. The physical changes that take place as a person matures from infancy to adulthood are themselves mind-boggling. But since we are created in the image of God, the maturity process for adults is not only physical, it's spiritual as well. We are wired with the capacity to mature spiritually. Immaturity can be even adorable in children at times and perhaps refreshing at times in the lives of new believers spiritually. We can all tell certain funny stories about our upbringing or the upbringing of our children. Things that we did that were very immature, that were foolish, that showed our 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 childishness. There we go. And we can say those same types of things, can't we, for our own spiritual walk with God. Things that we thought when we first came to Christ as Savior that were so foolish and we laugh about them now, but why can we laugh? As time passes, the stories of our immaturity remain funny only if we grow up. There is hardly anything more ugly in this world than a person who fails to mature. It is our duty, it is our privilege, it is our joy to mature, to keep on changing and growing and being transformed in the inner man. Christian, I ask this morning, are you maturing? 
Have you grown in your spirit over the last year? Are you progressively changing into a fuller and more complete human being? Our pattern, our standard, our benchmark and prototype is Jesus of Nazareth, the quintessential human being. And Jesus' example commends to us as human beings a life process of physical and spiritual maturation. We see this principle fleshed out for us in two locations and three different scenes here at the end of Luke chapter 2. We first of all find Jesus at Nazareth, his life there. And we're going to take a little bit of time to paint the picture of Jesus' early life because there's very little that is said about it. So we will draw from historical documents and cultural understanding and try to fill in a little better what did Jesus experience? Life at Nazareth. We see first of all here in verse 39 that Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord. They returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. They'd done everything required by the law. That goes back to our discussion last week as we look at the context, as we consider the context here. They fulfilled those requirements. Mary's purification offering, perhaps Joseph's as well, depending on what the plural there meant. There was the dedication of Jesus and the five shekel tasks to redeem him as a firstborn son. After all of that has taken place, they head home for Galilee and to Nazareth, their home. What do we know about Joseph? Joseph and Mary are Jesus' parents. Joseph, of course, his earthly father, in a sense, his adoptive father. What we know of Joseph is that he was a man of great character. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 19 refers to him as a righteous man. His occupation, we learn from Matthew 13.55, was that of a carpenter. The word is much broader than our word, carpenter. It could even, in some cases, refer to a man who worked with stone, if it was taken to mean a builder. More likely, it did refer to one who worked with wood, but in Israel at that time, we're not thinking here of framing up houses as a carpenter. As a carpenter, wood was very, an extremely rare commodity, and this would have, he would have been someone who took in jobs and filled orders for people making things out of wood that could not be made out of stone. There was plenty of that around. There wasn't as much wood. But Joseph was probably a worker with wood, filling orders in a small shop, a humble but sufficient living would have been provided by this endeavor. What do we know of Mary? Character the same as that of Joseph, a righteous woman. In fact, the angel said to her in chapter 2 and verse 28 that she was highly favored by God. She was submissive to God's will. Remember that remark in chapter 1 and verse 38. Let it be to me as you have designed, she says. She's submissive to the will of God. We have two charactered parents. Her occupation would have been to keep the home working and operating efficiently, and Mary had work to do, believe me. She had, we know, five boys in the home, uh, according to Matthew 13, Luke chapter 8. There were five brothers in the house, and at least two sisters, and I think very probably three or more sisters in his home. So this was a large, busy family. Jesus grew up in this large, healthy family where God is feared. His hometown, as we've noticed here in verse 39, is Nazareth. 
Now, in the chronology of it all, in light of Matthew's account, we should understand verse 39 to mean after leaving Jerusalem, they eventually returned to Galilee. Luke collapses the historical record here. There are many details that he desires to skip for his own purposes, and it could be, some would argue with this, but it could well be that he's very familiar with with what Matthew has written. And so does not go into the whole account of going back to Bethlehem, most probably, but at any rate being visited in Bethlehem by the Magi at a home where they were living. He does not mention Herod's attempt to murder Jesus and killing numerous children around the village of Bethlehem. Joseph, then warned by an angel, heads south and escapes, of course, that murderous plot by the uh, typically paranoid Herod. And the family goes to live in Egypt for a short period of time. They return to Egypt, and Matthew seems to indicate that they had every intention of coming back here to Bethlehem and to make their home in Bethlehem. But Herod's son, Archelaus, has taken over the reins in a lesser capacity, but he is now the ethnarch of Judea. When Joseph hears that, he's very troubled. Archelaus was one bad dude. We'll just put it that way. Herod was a terrible man, and Archelaus even broke the pattern from his father and was, if possible, even more of an evil man. Joseph says this is not a very good place to live. An angel comes again and speaks to Joseph and confirms his fears and sends him to where? Nazareth. So Luke crunches all of that and just simply says he left Jerusalem to go to Nazareth. There is more to the whole story and a very interesting part of the story. But we will follow Luke's lead here and go simply to Nazareth. As we noted earlier, Nazareth is situated on a mountainous terrain along one of three major passes leading into the Jezreel Valley. This is in the northern part of Israel. You might have a Bible map there and just see that northern part and where Nazareth is located on that valley or next to, uh, at the pass leading into that valley. Galilee was a rich and fertile region. It boasted vast fertile valleys and breathtaking views from lofty mountain heights, not to mention the rich natural resources of the Sea of Galilee itself. I love uh, Edersheim's words that Galilee was wistfully referred to as the place where Asher dipped his foot in oil. In other words, Galilee was a very fertile place, a rich region. Nazareth was not a particularly wealthy town in this region, but it was a suitable place to scratch out a simple living. And that's apparently what Joseph does. But what Nazareth offered by way of physical interest, it lacked by way of reputation. The religious elite in Judea despised Nazareth, and they despised Galilee in general. They were a little bit miffed about how beautiful Galilee was, I think, in the whole scheme of things. They were upset, first of all, that Galilee was populated largely by Gentiles. They were also concerned about the uh, the lukewarm religious fervor of the Jews that happened to populate Galilee. And so those in Judea, and particularly the leaders in Jerusalem, always looked down on Galilee. And for Jesus' family, it was here in Nazareth, this town in particular that was despised by the religious establishment, where tongues wagged faster than anywhere else. Everyone in Nazareth knew Joseph and Mary, and they knew that Mary was with child during the betrothal period, and they never forgot that fact. It was here Jesus became, however, 
an astute observer of nature. This is, where, this is where the Father wanted him to grow up, in Nazareth. It was here that Jesus observed the lilies of the field, a hen gather her chicks under her wings, a sparrow fall to the ground. It was here that Jesus took in those first sights as a little boy and began to think and to meditate on nature. Here he watched seeds sown across various kinds of soil, wheat harvested and winnowed, and the tares gathered and burned. It is here that he watched vineyards gleaned and shepherds keep watch over their flocks. It was here that he meditated and thought and put his world together in his growing mind. Remember, Jesus is every bit as human as you and I apart from sin nature. But that sin nature is not inherently human, right? Adam and Eve did not have a sin nature. They weren't sinners by nature at their creation. In every sense of the term, Jesus was human. And as a boy, he does not have omniscience. He's not exercising that capacity. But he is learning and putting things together and observing his world. And Jesus had to be the most able of human observers. It was here that he attended his first wedding, we would assume, and funeral. Here that he observed oppressive masters and foolish slaves and cruel creditors and desperate debtors and needy widows and fickle judges. Here in Nazareth, a boy drank in the world around him, considered it in light of the Father's glory, and grew to manhood. Here in Nazareth. And he did just that. He grew, verse 40. The child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. The child grew. The word here is a word for a small child. There will be a different word that is used later. But he grew here, you notice in verse 40, physically. He grew, he became strong. His size increased. The Greek word here draws attention to the process of growth. He kept on growing. He kept on maturing physically. His vigor increased. He grew strong. He kept on growing in this way. Stronger and stronger, the Greek text would indicate. This is a heritage, certainly, that every child is supposed to receive, isn't it? Raising a physically healthy child to maturity is part of the noble undertaking of godly parents. And we see that sanctioned here in Scripture as God leads to the nurturing of His own Son on earth. Jesus was the quintessential man, and He grew strong. We need to remember that, those of us who are parents, and particularly those raising growing children. It's a process. It takes a lot of hard work, doesn't it? You labor day in and day out to nurture the physical well-being of your children. Be encouraged that in doing so, you are fulfilling a noble task. You are doing God's will. Don't quit. We live in a world where it seems that people have lost their way. Children so often are being raised in situations where their physical nurture is completely disregarded. There are horrible stories but there is a broad failure in this area, in this world, in the world in which we inhabit. We are to raise our children with physical strength and health to the best of our ability. But Jesus did not, and his parents did, were not concerned merely with his physical development. 
We have many parents who are on that side of the equation, very interested in their physical nurture of their children, but not so interested in the spiritual nurture. We notice that's not the case here, as Jesus was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. We are assuming here the work of Joseph and Mary in this entire process, and I think we should. In fact, again, the Greek text would indicate there are passive verbs that are used here. Jesus is being nurtured along. He's being filled with wisdom. The emphasis falls upon here the work that others are doing to train him in wisdom. Under the tutelage of his parents and the And later at the local synagogue, we see the perfect man realizing his full potential through incremental stages of moral growth. What are the means that were used? Certainly his family instructed him in the things of God. What did we read here as Pastor read earlier? Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And then it moves into how to teach that, how to be a, a call to be filled with the truth of God's Word and then to teach that Word to our children. When? All the time, right? When we sit at home, when we lie down, when we get up. Not banging onto their head a book, not ringing in their ears at every moment some teaching point, but always in the process of life teaching and nurturing and training our children. That is what Jesus is endeavoring to or what his parents are endeavoring to do in Jesus' life here. He is growing in wisdom. The rabbis spoke favorably of children sucking in knowledge of the law at their mother's breast. A beautiful picture of the very early nurture of teaching the laws of God to the next generation. Ancient Jewish historian Josephus writes this, Jews were from their swaddling clothes, that is from infancy. We would say it maybe from their diaper trained to recognize God as their Father and as the Maker of the world. Having been taught the knowledge of the law from earliest youth, they bore in their souls the image of the commandments. From their earliest consciousness, they learned the laws so as to have them, as it were, graven on the soul. What beautiful words that speak of the nurture of our children in the things of God that they would bear in their souls the image of the commandments, that they would be graven on their soul. This was the endeavor of godly Jewish parents. Along with the nurture in the law from home, there were also the Israeli holy days, the festivals. There was the Israeli history. There were the ornaments and the scriptures that were even physically tied around the home or written on the gates or wherever, as we read earlier here in Deuteronomy 6. And then there was the synagogue. The synagogue, at age 5 or 6, Jesus would have made his way for his first day at school. Going to the synagogue there, he would have started his training in Nazareth. The education at home never ended, but at 5 or 6 years of age, uh, there was a giving off of that responsibility or a sharing of that responsibility with those that had been trained to raise children in the teachings of Scripture. The boys started by memorizing Leviticus, and they continued their education until usually 13 years of age when they were recognized as a son of the law. By age 13, they had been trained to think, And having learned also a skill or trade by that point, could be trusted to develop their own minds from then on as they saturated themselves with Scripture. The only exception 
was for the boys who would go to Jerusalem and train to be a rabbi. They would continue on in school for many, many years. But the vast majority of Israelites were done at 12 or 13 years of age. Now, there's a few 12 or 13 years of <laughs> children, year old children here that are really getting interested in this. <laughs> you can't go home now and say, Jesus quit at 12, I'm going to quit at 12. That won't work. It's a whole different culture. And I might throw in a word here. It's not a culture we can always emulate. There are pieces of it that we need to draw out. And there are things that we should emulate. There are other things that we cannot The only exception, as I mentioned, was those boys who would go south. So Jesus probably, south to Jerusalem, so Jesus probably ended his formal training at the synagogue in his 12th year of life. He grew in wisdom, that is moral skill, as it was taught uniquely in that setting through the Word of God in the Old Testament. We notice also in verse 40 that the grace of God was upon him. That was a given for Jesus, I suppose, It is the ultimate hope for all of our children that the blessing of God would rest upon them as they grow in the wisdom of the Lord. This is life at Nazareth. This is normality for Jesus in his growing days. We know really little else about it other than the episode that is before us here now. And the scene shifts to a visit to Jerusalem, verse 41. There is a family custom that is mentioned here, verse 41. Every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. The Passover festival at Jerusalem, we're familiar with it. Exodus 23 requires all male Jews to travel to Jerusalem and attend three festivals at the temple, Passover, Pentecost, and booths or tabernacles. But by Jesus' time, the rabbis only required those who were living within 15 miles to come, and generally Jews would go once a year, if at all, to the major festivals. But there were many. If you were going to go, Passover was the time you would go, and there were many people who would descend upon the city at this time. The women were exempt from going, and so as we put all of this together, living quite a ways from Jerusalem, Joseph and Mary going together, there is evidence here of a pious home, of a godly, devout home, where they would set aside somewhere in the neighborhood, depending on how long they were at the uh, feast, they would set aside close to two weeks to make this journey, to be there for the seven-day festival and to return home. There is there's some possibility that they may have returned in the middle of the festival, but at any rate, over a week was spent in this exercise. And this was family tradition. This was custom. The journey there, the family would walk with a caravan of other pilgrims uh, for protection's sake and also for fellowship reasons. And as they would converge on the city, walking up the heights of, to Jerusalem, they would merge with other pilgrims in their various caravans, merging and converging upon this holy city. Probably chanting the Psalms of Ascent, Psalm 120 and following as they ascended and to the accompaniment of instruments. And through the days of the festival, Jesus' family worshipped God there. This was their custom. But we notice a crisis in the family at verse 43. After the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind at Jerusalem. But they were unaware of it. The boy, we have now a different word than is used up above. Verse 40 is translated child. That's a different Greek word than is translated boy here in verse 43. 
word that we find here in verse 43 is of an older boy, a man who has come to the place, right, to the threshold of maturity. As I mentioned, at 12 or 13, a Jewish boy would be considered mature. And after a year of semi-probation, he was treated legally as an adult. You can imagine then that the training in this 12th year was particularly intense as the boy was coming to the place where his formal education would be ended. Still living, of course, in his father's tent, perhaps for several generations. But his formal training would be ended here in this 12th year. Now Jesus, as he comes to the temple in this 12th year, has come to the place where he realizes who he is. He realizes that he is the Messiah. He realizes what his work will be and his calling from God. He will not, it appears that he thinks here in his own mind, he will not, at this point, take on his father's occupation, as was tradition among Jewish boys, but would in fact break from the family and continue on past the training that he got at the synagogue in Nazareth and would be schooled here in Jerusalem. He'd come to that realization. Now you have to wonder at this point why he didn't have this conversation with his parents and make this very clear. Maybe he did have some type of conversation with them and they simply did not understand. In fact, what he gives by way of explanation, they don't understand, so that's possible. It might be, on the other hand, that he became so engrossed in the teaching there at the temple that he simply forgot about returning home. We don't know, but what we do know, verse 44, is that his parents were thinking that he was in their company and they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends, and when they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem. So we have quite a crisis developing here. One day's walk in a caravan would be about 20 miles The company, that is the caravan of pilgrims with which they traveled, stops to set up camp for the night. They're recharging their batteries for the walk the entire day, the next day. And Joseph and Mary, I'm sure, just keep expecting to see Jesus' face sort of pop up here sooner or later. And they realize as time passes that he's not showing up. Where is he? Maybe it was time for bed, we don't know, but we do have time to begin to ask other people, where did he go? Have you seen him? Have you seen Jesus? They look around, he's nowhere to be found. We should not assume here negligence on Joseph and Mary's part. I suppose in our setting, if we completely lose track of a 12-year-old, there might be some questions that we should really ask. That's not the case with Joseph and Mary. Jesus is considered a man. It's his business to make sure he gets on the trip and take care of himself. And, I mean, put yourself in their shoes. With a boy who'd never sinned, you start to count on some things. <laughs> this boy is the most responsible kid anybody had ever seen. Matter of fact, it, it probably was kind of rough for his siblings sometimes that way. But they, they, they're, they're counting on the fact that he is responsible and he will travel with them. But he's not there. They begin looking again. The imperfect tense is used here. They're looking all around for him, asking people, where is he? Where is he? Nobody knows. You can imagine the desperation that comes over them. Where is Jesus? What has happened to him? And there's no 911 number to punch into your cell phone. So what do they do? The only thing they can do. When they did not find him, verse 45, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. That had to be a difficult walk back to Jerusalem. 
You can imagine their spirits alternating between self-critique and fear and anger and judgment and sometimes approaching desperation. Well, the whole crisis is resolved when they find him, verse 46, but it's after three days. That is a whole journey out, a whole journey back, and on that third day, searching for him, they are able to locate him after three days. They found him where? In the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. I don't know, this is just conjecture. My guess is that's probably pretty much where they started, was the temple. I think they, they knew that he loved the teaching of the rabbis and he loved the things of God and he'd probably be around there somewhere if he was in Jerusalem after all. If somehow he didn't get caught on the way home in some way by something, they didn't know. They didn't know what was going on, but they probably fairly soon in their journey, uh, retracing their steps certainly, went to the temple and sought out Jesus, finding him there. So they're traversing this expanse, these expansive courts that surround the temple itself, desperately looking at each face in the crowd that passes them, hoping to see him, and there he is. They spot him sitting amidst a cluster of rabbis, having a deep discussion. Jesus had been drinking in the discussion and engaging these rabbis in a question and answer time, which was very typical of the learning in that day. What wasn't typical was what Jesus was asking. I suspect he had pretty well exhausted the full knowledge of the synagogue at Nazareth a long time ago. And he was here now bringing all of those questions. Think of that. This is God. He's bringing all of those questions in his humanity that he is still wondering and still searching out and still trying to find somebody who has an answer that makes sense. And he's asking these questions, probably all that he'd brought from Nazareth, and asking and asking And I'm sure that this was a meeting these rabbis would never forget. This particular group pressed further than they had ever been pressed by an adult, perhaps by this 12-year-old boy. And as we might expect, verse 47, everyone who heard him then was amazed at his understanding and his answers. Not only were his questions amazing, we note here that he had some pretty amazing answers as well. The rabbis are stunned. The Greek text indicates that they were repeatedly baffled by Jesus' wisdom in this session, and perhaps sessions over the days that he was missing from his family. They hadn't seen anything like this, and they hadn't seen anything yet. There was a day coming when Jesus' questions was going to send some of their group home red-faced and with a craving in their heart to kill this boy. And as Danker puts it, in that day, he would give answers to his own questions. That day is still coming. Jesus is still maturing. He is still growing. He is still learning. Well, the rabbis aren't the only ones that are baffled by Jesus. Verse 48, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. They were astonished, not so much by his knowledge of the Word of God as by his location. The Greek word indicates that they were dumbstruck. And so his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. What in the world were you thinking? Is essentially what Mary's saying. Jesus had never pulled anything like this before. They have been anxiously searching. We could render the Greek this way. With great mental anguish, we have been constantly looking for you. 
What were you thinking? This really upset Mary. It really upset Joseph. The rabbis are amazed. Joseph and Mary are astonished. So is Jesus. His explanation comes in verse 49, and this really is the heart of this entire text. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Did you not know that I needed to be in my father's house? The meaning of the text is a bit bit difficult for us in that it reads simply, that in thee of the father of me. That in thee, and the thee is plural, in the father of me. So you have to fill in the blank there. That I am in the house of my father, doing the business of my father, involved with the things of my father. Obviously it doesn't really matter. The point is that he was doing what God had given him to do. And his father was not Joseph. He makes that quite clear here. I had to be in my father's house. That's exactly what Mary was saying to him. You need to be in your father's house. Your father's house is in Nazareth, and the group that we just left is probably getting there right about now, and we'd all like to be in your father's house. Jesus says, I'm in my father's house. That's where my business is. This is what I'm called to do. What I'd like us to grasp here today, above all things, is that Jesus had purpose. He had purpose. He knew what his father had given him to do, and he was going to do it. This was his father's house. This was the place from which he would rule the earth as Messiah. This was where he belonged. And we learn here in Jesus' example at this place, now he will mature, he will grow, he will expand his thinking. But we learn here a principle. And that is when God clearly defines his purpose to you, you must pursue that purpose at all cost. Jesus' pursuit of the purpose of God was superior to his family loyalty. Family was not first and God second. God's will was first and family came second. How would his family do without him? A young man on the verge of becoming partner in his father's business? How would they fare without him? A boy who undoubtedly had brought them so much joy and so much help over the years, how would they fare without him? That was not the ultimate question. The ultimate question for Jesus was, what does God want me to do? I will do that. God's purpose for your life is superior to family loyalty. It is superior, secondly, to family security. Have you ever thought about this? This might be really obvious to you. It just dawned on me in the meditation on this passage, but where did Jesus stay? He's a 12-year-old kid with no family, no connections in Jerusalem. Where did he stay? I assume he probably camped out at the temple. Where was he going to stay? How was he going to make a living? How was he going to pursue life? Yes, he's 12 years of age now, and maybe that's a part of what he's doing by asking all these questions, is trying to find a rabbi that will take him under his wing because of his obvious wisdom. I don't know. I don't know that Jesus knew. What he knew was what his purpose was, and he did it. And he would trust God to take care of him, to house him, to 
show him where he wanted him to go. None of that mattered. He had a job to do, and he was ready to do it. I'd like us to turn to the book of John in verse 4 for a few moments. And I'd like you to stir up your spirit here and to consider this very carefully. This is the key to the passage before us. The purpose that Jesus had in fulfilling God's will. And I'd like you to see it's brought out so clearly in the book of John. If we could just borrow from his writings. It's so clear that Jesus never lost this focus. John chapter 4 and verse 34. Jesus said, speaking to the woman of Samaria at the well by Sychar, He said, my food is to do the will of Him. The will of Him who sent me and to finish His work. You see, Jesus is again at a place here without food, without care. None of that matters. My job, my food is to do the will of my Father. He never changed that perspective. Chapter 6 and verse 38. He says that to a woman of ill repute, a Samaritan, as he shares the saving message with her. But Jesus makes that same statement to others. Chapter 6 of John, verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Here to Jews. Chapter 8 and verse 29. Chapter 8 and verse 29. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Chapter 17 and verse 4, at the end of his life, even to the Father, he makes this same claim. This was not rhetoric on Jesus' part. This was reality. Verse 4 of chapter 17, as Jesus prays to the Father, he says, I have brought you glory on earth. How? By completing the work you gave me to do. This line of thought is embedded in the mission statement of Eden Baptist Church. I don't know if you catch that. But our job is to bring glory to the Father by fulfilling the work that He's given us to do. That is our purpose in this world. And that was the purpose of Jesus, the quintessential man who laid out that example for us. Pursue the will of God and do it at all cost. Well, as we go back to Luke 2... Sadly, and we would put all of ourselves right there with Mary and Joseph, they just don't get it. What do you mean you're in your father's house doing what you are our son and you're supposed to be in Nazareth with us? That's all they could understand at this point. Doing your father's will, following his purpose. There is an age and there is a time when family resistance needs itself to be resisted. There are times when we need to offend and disregard what family says if it means that we are obeying God. But there's other times when that's not necessarily the case, depending on the circumstances. And the circumstances here, what his parents were saying, did not force Jesus to sin. 
And so he caters to their imperception. Knowing as we do the full humanity of Christ, knowing as we do, however, the full deity of Christ, the next verse is absolutely stunning. Verse 51, Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. Jesus could clearly see that his parents wanted him to return home, that they did not understand his mission, and so he chose, the Greek text again is more specific than the English, he chose to actively continue submitting his will to the will of his parents out of obedience to God. What condescension. Jesus willingly submits to the authority of his earthly parents whom he ultimately created. We cannot begin to understand what grave disappointment Jesus suffered. I don't know how often we put the light on this aspect of the story, but let's think about it for a few moments. Jesus is walking away from the temple courts. Did he look back? Did he just point his nose to Nazareth and walk forward? All that we can know is that in some respects, in a figure of speech, he left his heart at the temple. He was leaving his father's house. This was his home, and he knew it. That's why he went one day, some many years later, and with a whip, cleaned house. It was his house. And when you've got rats in your house, you clean them out, because that's your right to do. He's leaving his house in his rearview mirror. Not only that, but on a human level, by living in Galilee, Jesus was consigning himself to obscurity and isolation. Nobody in Judea, where the Word of God was taught at its highest level, none of the theologians that were there would give any time to anybody from Galilee. You remember all of the negative statements made about Jesus' followers? They're Galileans. Well, there's something to that. Those who lived in Judea in that harsh land, that harsh terrain, they had something of a chip on their shoulder. Uh, You go ahead, all you who are going to live in the beautiful land of Galilee, but we're going to stay here where the temple is. And they despised anyone who had not come to live in Judea and put themselves at the feet of the rabbis who really knew the Scriptures. And so it was said in that day, if a person wished to be rich, let him go north. Galilee. Think of how this stung Jesus. If he wished to be wise, let him go south to Judea. Jesus was, or Judea rather, was a far less fertile region than Galilee. There were less trees in Judea. More rocky terrain, hard, intense area to live, but this is where the temple was. This is where the mines were. Jesus leaves all of that behind. To walk off in isolation from that and to live in obscurity and to never be able to say anything other than that he was from Nazareth of Galilee. He was willing 
to make that exchange in order to honor God's will and his parents' wishes. By returning to Galilee, he was submitting to a life on the shelf, it would seem. To the religious elite, he would always be an untrained, despised Galilean. His brief stint at the temple had started with a bang, but it came to an end with a fizzle. And for the next 20 years, Jesus lived in obscurity in Nazareth, completely outside the loop. Those of you who are living with a mom and a dad, a mom and a dad who can tell you what to do, there's times I know when you will get upset with your parents' rules and expectations and demands. And you might find yourself saying from time to time, they just don't get it. They're flat wrong. In fact, I'm old enough to know better than they know to make my own decisions to do my own thing. You ever felt that way? There isn't anybody here that's had a mom and a dad that hasn't felt that way because there's nobody here who's Jesus. We all feel that way. We've all had that experience. They're cramping my style. They're lowering my horizons. They just don't get it. I want you to think of something here, young people. Jesus was God. He created the universe. And yet he chose to submit his will to the will of his parents because to do so was right. Do you remember what Paul says to the Ephesians? Children, obey your parents because they're smarter than you are. Right? Is that what it says? Children, obey your parents because this is right. That's what Jesus did. He didn't go live a different way and say, now listen, you've got to understand, young people, I was God. I made my parents. So, you know, I kind of have some ways of getting around things here. Your parents made you, and so you've got to listen to that. That's not what Jesus did. He submitted to his mother and his father because it was right. That didn't miss Mary. The whole statement about, this is my father's house, this is my business, that was lost on Mary for the time being. But she caught some of this, you notice in verse 51. His mother treasured all these things in her heart. Who is this boy? She had to be asking through all of her life. She did not get it yet, but she was stewing on it. She was meditating on what Jesus did and said, and one day she became an important source of the information that we receive right here. She thought about it. In verse 52, we see then in summary of Jesus growing up and of his coming to manhood, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men 20 years of his life. That's all we have. All that we need to know according to the Father's design for right now is that he grew in wisdom and stature, in favor with God, in favor with man. The next thing that we see is a man in his early 30s 
now fulfilling actively the purpose that God had for him. He grew. In verse 40, the words are passive. In verse 52, they are active. Jesus grew. He kept on growing in wisdom and stature. This term to grow is used of ships making headway. The idea is not simply expanding, but the idea is progressing, advancing in maturity. How did he grow? What kind of progress did he make in wisdom? That is, he feared God and lived skillfully on the basis of his knowledge of God and his word. He grew in stature. That can refer to age or height. Obviously, both are true. And his physical capacities increased. And as they did, his moral wisdom matched his progress. He grew in the favor of God. He grew in favor with God. That is, he pleased the Father, as we will see in chapter 3 and verse 22, made very explicit. The real issue in life is just this, that God, what God thinks of us. He pleased God. We are not Jesus Christ, we are not sinless, but you too can please God. By doing what he's given us to do. Not doing what he's given someone else to do. Not trying to become someone we're not but doing what He's given you to do, you can please God by fulfilling His purpose in this world. Job pleased God. David pleased God. Paul pleased God. And many saints throughout history have pleased God. We will sin, but we can please Him. This is what Jesus did. And He grew in favor with man. And I believe as we close out this section, we can say this as it ends the section. Christians who are maturing in their relationship with God are maturing in their relationship with other people. Living a life of beauty does not mean that everyone will always agree with you, that everyone will always like you. That's quite clear from Jesus' example in later years. But living the beauty of the walk that God calls us to walk will bring us in favor with other people. Genuine godliness is attractive. It won't be attractive to everyone, but genuine godliness is attractive. Do you excuse your unattractiveness to others as the result of your godliness? That's a dangerous spot to be in. It might be the real reason that you're unattractive to others is your ungodliness. As the beauty of God's Spirit and of His truth fleshed itself out in the life of Jesus, other people looked upon Him with favor. As the prototype of authentic human experience, Jesus' example teaches us that to really live means that we must grow in maturity. As such, maturity is marked by submission to authority. This maturity is marked by submission to authority and understanding God's purpose for our lives. Now that's true of all of us. Let me just strike once more for those of you who are growing within your families, children who are here this morning. This might seem a little goofy, but I hope I get in your head with it. All right? We live in the greater metropolitan area. What do we call it? Minneapolis-St. Paul. If you ever fly somewhere or you see an abbreviation, how is that abbreviated? MSP, right? Minneapolis-St. Paul. I want you to think about this. and Just think about it for today if that's all the longer it sticks. 
What does God want of you? What is He asking of you? How do you follow God's will? MSP. Maturity. He wants you to mature. Submission. He wants you to submit to authority, certainly to your parents, to those in authority over you. And P, purpose. He wants you to find His purpose for your life so that you can fulfill that purpose no matter what anyone else says. He wants you to grow maturity, to be submissive to authority, and to be filled with purpose. That's your calling. That's your focus. And maybe as some of you leave this land and move to other places, to college, and as life takes you in other places, always think back to home. MSP. Maturity, submission, purpose. Jesus ordered his life to grow in the capacity to act in the interest of God. John 8, 29, I always do what pleases him. Are you maturing? If yes, keep growing. Let me just address here as we close. If not, Maybe your lack of maturation indicates that you are spiritually inanimate. Those that God saves, He grows. Those to whom He gives life, He matures. And if you can honestly look at your life and say, I've made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, but I can't go back far enough to find the time when I was any different than I am right now. There's no growth, there's no maturity, there's no development in your life. Remember, animate objects grow. Inanimate objects never do. You need life, very possibly. Certainly, you would need to repent. Are you growing? Are you maturing? Are you becoming complete in Christ? If not, This is the day to begin. If so, keep running. Mature, submit, and find God's purpose for your life and run with it, just like Jesus did. Let's bow for prayer. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to look into your word, to invest this significant time here this morning. And I pray that it will bear fruit, that we will be like Christ, that we would grow in wisdom in stature, in favor with God, in favor with man, as you would have us to. I pray, dear God, to this end for everyone here who knows Christ as Savior, and I plead to this end for anyone who does not. Bring them to saving, living faith in connection with Christ so that they may grow all of their days. Mature us, I pray. Develop us and lift us up. I bring before you this church, this assembly, these who are here, those who travel today and are not with us. I pray, God, that we will be a maturing people, growing in the likeness of Jesus and fulfilling the purpose that you have for our lives that we may say, I always do those things which please the Father. I can't say that, God. I know if we're honest, we can't say I always do those things which please the Father, but I pray that that would be the characteristic of our life, that we are obedient children of God. Please do your work to that end as we respond in faith and persevere 
in the life that you've given us in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's